begin now. We would worship our God in the reading of his word. You can see in your bulletin this morning that we're turning now to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 1. We are going to be training our attention on verses 21 through 23, but we'll get a bit of a running start here in our reading. I'll back up to verse 15 where Paul reflects upon the glory of Christ over creation and redemption both. So Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15, hear now the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul. We thank you for your Holy Spirit by whom he spoke. And now we pray that that same Spirit would be about a gracious work in us, that again we might have ears to hear, that we might go forth as those who have heard. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when you're reading a book, And especially when it's a book that you're enjoying, sometimes as you're reading along, you come across one of those passages in the book. Maybe it's just one paragraph. Maybe it's just a few sentences that really captures it. Something striking. Maybe it's a description of a particular character who's just been introduced to the story. Or maybe it's a summary of the argument that the author has been making along the way. It's one of those passages that takes all of those things that you've been tracking, that you've been delighting in, or something that's newly introduced, and it brings it together. And it's potent because it is just a few sentences. And they're well-crafted sentences. And they're well-chosen words. And that's when you reach 
or your pencil or your pen or your highlighter to mark the passage. There are different schools of thought out there as to how you ought to mark up a book when you come across a passage like that, different approaches. I'll admit I'm not much of a highlighter man myself. I'm more of a pencil-in-the-margins man. So if I come across something that's noteworthy and I want to make a note of its worthiness, I might just make a check mark and keep going. If it's something that's especially interesting, I might take the time to write int, I-N-T, a fuller mark of its noteworthiness. If it's a stinging criticism of some other view, maybe even some other author, I might take the time to write ouch. And I've got that in a few margins of a few of my books. If it's something that makes me think, I can't believe he actually wrote that, I might just put an exclamation point or two, depending upon just how unbelievable it is. But when I come across one of those passages that really captures something, one of those passages that practically makes me sit up, maybe even get up out of my chair, what I usually write is, wow. Might even linger a little bit as I write it because I want to allow what I just read to sink in. Might even go back and read it again, at which point I underline my own wow or add an exclamation point. Now, it's a little different when you're reading Colossians. It's different, first of all, because the whole thing is God's Word. So this is to read literature unlike any other literature. And it's different, second of all, because in Colossians there are so many passages that are potent in their own ways. But still, even allowing for all of that, there's something about Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. There's something about these three verses when it comes to the sweep of the gospel, when it comes to the doctrines of sin and salvation, when it comes to the realities of holiness and hope. This is a wow passage because it's so rich. There's so much in it. Paul sets so much before us in just one sentence. Because that's what this is. This is the gospel in a nutshell in one sentence. Verses 21 through 23. Wow. Notice, before we take out our magnifying glasses and look at these verses, notice what Paul says to lead up to it. In verses 15 through 20, Paul is making the point in different ways that Christ is the highest one. He is the preeminent one. He's preeminent over creation because he is the creator. He's also preeminent when it comes to redemption because he is the redeemer. In particular, he is the reconciler. He is the one through whom God has reconciled all things to himself. So that's what Paul's been saying in verses 15 through 20 to lead up to this. And then he goes right on in our verses, verses 21 through 23. He's just been talking in these exalted terms about the exalted Christ, including Christ as the reconciler. Well, now in our verses, he's going to say to the Colossians, here's how you are related to this preeminent one. This exalted one who is the reconciler 
here's what he has to do with you. Or put the other way around, here's what you have to do with him. In other words, he's not one of those exalted figures who's been raised up in such a way that the common folk can't have anything to do with him. Like the king who who won't dare come close to the unwashed commoners. Or the CEO who doesn't even know his secretary's name. Not Jesus. One of the reasons that he is the exalted figure that he is, is what he's done for you. And how he has drawn so near to you. So as to reconcile you to God. So this exalted one. Doubly exalted. Creation and redemption. Paul's saying to the Colossians. Think about how he's related to you and you to him. And he brings it to bear upon their own lives. Has them reflect upon their own lives. Where they've been. Where they are. Where they're going. So let's unpack what Paul has to say here. And I'll point out now four points we're going to canvas as we make our way. And they are these. What we were. What Christ did. What Christ will do in the future. And then finally, what we must do in the meantime. So those four. What we were what Christ did, what Christ will do one day, and what we must do in the meantime. In other words, sin, redemption, destiny, perseverance. Sin, destiny, sin, redemption, destiny, perseverance. So let's begin with what we were. We'll begin with what the Colossians were. And Paul puts it quite bluntly. Look at verse 21. You once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And that's quite a trio of things to say about what they were. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Think about each one of them. First of all, he says, you were alienated. You were estranged. When I was a kid, I'd read in the newspaper about some public figure and his estranged wife. And I remember thinking as a kid, what's so strange about her? And that seemed like a rather unkind thing to say about somebody in the newspaper. That's because I didn't get it. I didn't understand the word estranged. It meant that things were not right in the relationship. There was not peace in the relationship. For one reason or another, these two were at odds. There was some kind of break in the bond. Well, in the case of God and the Colossians, the way they were, we don't have to guess what the reason was. The reason was sin and holiness. It was their sin and God's holiness. They didn't know God. They didn't love God. Deep down, they were rebels against God. And because God is holy... He simply cannot look with favor upon people like that, upon people who are, who are still rebels against him. So they were alienated from God. They were estranged from God. So we can begin there. And not only, to make matters worse, not only were they alienated from God, 
But remember, Paul's writing this letter to a church that would have been made up predominantly of Gentiles. And what that means is that he's writing this letter to a church that's predominantly made up of people who, before their coming to Christ, were cut off from the people of God in the world, cut off from the church. The Jews were the people of God in the world. They were the church. And everybody else, the Gentiles, they were separated from the people of God by barriers that God himself had put up in his Old Testament law. So these Gentile Christians in the city of Colossae, well, before Paul's ministry and before they came to Christ, thanks to Paul's ministry, these people were as alienated as you can get. They were entirely on the outside looking in because they were alienated from God and they were alienated from the people who knew God in the world. So that's alienated. And then it gets even bleaker than that. Because then Paul says, you were also hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. As Paul puts it over in Romans 1, apart from Christ, people are haters of God. Again, Paul's quite blunt in assessing these things. Apart from Christ, people are haters of God. They're not just unaware They're not just indifferent. They're not just mildly annoyed with God. Paul says they're haters of God, as Paul puts it later in Romans. Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's Romans 8. And this is the kind of language that really gets at the heart of sin. Sin is a spiritual heart condition. It isn't just outwardly breaking certain commandments. It is a heart condition of hostility to God. And think about this, this hostility right after the alienation, because the two of them together, well, this is bleak. Not only was God wrathful toward the Colossians so that they were alienated from him, but also the Colossians were wrathful toward God, hostile in mind. God was at war with them, alienated, and we might say they were at war right back, hostile in mind. Sometimes you can find yourself alienated. You can find yourself cut off from somebody you love, and that's what makes it so painful. You want nothing more than the alienation to be resolved. You want so badly for the relationship to be repaired. This was not like that for the Colossians. Before they came to know Christ, the Colossians were alienated from a God they hated. This was not the alienation of unrequited affection. This was not the Colossians saying, oh, we love God so much, if only he felt the same way back toward us. No, this was the alienation of warfare. God was wrathful toward them, and they were like pouting children who say, fine, we don't like him anyway. We're better off without him. Who needs him? So alienated, hostile in mind, and then the third in the trio, they were doing evil deeds. So alienated from God and and hostile within, well, that hostility didn't simply remain within. 
It's the nature of sin. It's the nature of that hostility toward God that it showed. It shows in evil deeds. It shows in deeds that are a breaking of his commandments. So that's what Paul's saying here about the Colossians. Before you came to Christ, before you became what you are now, you were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Now, I suppose somebody might think it's a little harsh for the Apostle Paul to, to hammer all of these things home, all three of them, one after the other. This is not Paul being harsh. First of all, Paul's a good pastor. So he knows when words like this are called for and when they're not. Paul's a good, wise pastor. And second of all, Paul's a good teacher and writer, and he knows when words like this are called for to set the stage for what's going to come next, and in a moment we'll see what comes next. So no question, these were good words for the Colossians to have to read, to have read out loud in their assembly for worship in the same way that we just heard them today. But then that becomes the question, how are these important words for us to hear as well? How are these words about what the Colossians were, how is this something that we can apply to ourselves today? And here's why that's a question. As I was saying before, apparently Paul's writing this letter to a church that's predominantly made up of Gentiles, and at that time, that means he's, he's largely writing to people who'd been cut off from God and the people of God and who'd been living like it in first century ways. So when he says, you once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's describing what they really were like. And, and he's writing to people most of whom would have had that kind of radical before and after in their own experience. Well, there are some in the church today who can relate to that. But there are some who cannot. And so the question of application, what does this mean to us, how does this touch down in our lives, becomes especially pointed for them. Perhaps it's you. What if this kind of before and after wasn't your experience? What if you didn't grow up apart from the truth of the gospel? What if you didn't spend years cut off from God and living like it? If you've got a testimony like that, nurtured in the church, nurtured in faith in Christ, can't remember a day when I didn't know Christ, where does that leave you with a verse like this? Does this verse apply or can I skip it? It applies, don't skip it. Because every single one of us who's in Christ ought to take this language to heart. Whether your story reads precisely like this or it doesn't. Even if what Paul says here is not a description of your life the way it unfolded in time, it's still a description of your reality spiritually. This is what the human race is like apart from the grace of God, yourself included. And it's only by the grace of God that this is not who you are today. Even if there weren't days in your past when you were like this, you would be like this today if it weren't for the grace of God. In that sense, this is what we were, all of us. 
And that should humble us. And that should set us up for what comes next. So the first was what we were. Now the second is what Christ did. What did Christ do for those who were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds? Well, look at verse 22. This is what Christ did. Paul says, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. So alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In other words, in desperate need of being reconciled to God. And what Paul says next is, yes, exactly. That's precisely what Christ did. Brought brought back to God those who'd been cut off from God, even running away from him. He has now reconciled you. And this is the heart of the matter. Even thinking about this one glorious sentence that is verses 21, 22, and 23, this point is the heart of it. This is one of those fun parlor games that grammar lovers like to play. And if you're one of them, you know who you are. But here's the game. Take a good long sentence with lots of adjectives and adverbs and commas and clauses. It's especially fun to play this game in Greek. Paul writing in Greek. Take a sentence like that and, well, diagram it. Go in search of the heart of the sentence. Isolate the main part of the sentence that all of those other parts, the adjectives and the adverbs and the clauses and so forth, are hanging on. If you perform that exercise, if you play that parlor game, that grammar game, with this one sentence, verses 21 through 23, here's the heart of the sentence. He has reconciled you. That's it. Everything else in this passage is hanging on that and qualifying that and unpacking that. He has reconciled you. That's not just the heart of the sentence, brothers and sisters. That's at the heart of the gospel. We were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. And because God is holy and just, well, then a penalty had to be paid. And he paid it. Christ did. Wrath had to be borne. And he bore it. Christ did. And he did it on the cross. Strictly speaking, God cannot die. But a God-man can A God-man can die in his human nature. And so the Son of God took to himself a true human nature, including a body of flesh, a body just like ours, and he died in it. He paid the penalty. He bore the wrath. And because he did, the barrier between God and sinners has been torn down. And now by faith in Christ, we have personally entered into that experience of reconciliation. Children of wrath, no more. Children of God's delight, forevermore. By faith in Christ, we've come to experience what he bought for us with his blood. And what's the application of that? How does that touch down in our lives? Well, it means that in our lives, as Christian believers, the greatest need that a human being could ever have has been fully met. And that's the need to be brought back 
into reconciliation with God. And, and this is the key, brothers and sisters, this is the key to contentment in your life. If you don't grasp this, thinking about it negatively, if you don't grasp that in Christ, thanks to the cross, you've been reconciled to God, well, then you are going to be groping in vain for any measure of real deep contentment in life. Because if you don't grasp this, you're going to be constantly swamped by the thought of your needs that aren't met or of the things that you might lose without anything weighty, solid, eternal to counteract that. Reconciliation with God is the key. Being brought back to God so as to be reunited with him in sweet fellowship that trumps every loss, that transcends every sorrow. And that's not at all to minimize our losses and sorrows. It's simply to recognize that we who have been reconciled to God, we've been given a gift that far outweighs them all, and no one can touch that. No trial, no enemy, no circumstance can make you who believe in Christ to be alienated from God ever again. Christ has reconciled you, and no one can touch that. Christian, don't you ever believe Anybody who tries to tell you that God's going to cast you out again the way you were cast out before, reconciled forevermore. That's what Christ did. So what we were was first, what Christ did was second. Now here's the third. We're going to keep going. The gospel in a nutshell, and it's this, what Christ will do. So now we we pivot from Christ's work in the past and what it's meant for us in the present toward the future, toward the capital F, future. Why did Christ do this? Why did Christ reconcile? Well, again, look at verse 22. He did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there's a description here, a description of what we're going to be like in the world to come. And the work is already underway so that we've already been made new. In measure, these things are already true of us. But here especially, we look forward to the world to come where we're going to be perfectly holy, meaning devoted to God, perfectly blameless, No faults, no blemishes, and above reproach. In other words, nothing, not even the hint of anything that might be the ground of accusation or gossip. That's what we're going to be like in the world to come. So you see, it's it's more than just what we will be. It's true, we are going to be holy, blameless, and above reproach. But notice, Paul's not just talking about what we're going to be. He's also talking about something that Christ is going to do. Christ is going to present us. He's going to present us as those whom he has made to be holy, blameless, above reproach. Christ is going to do that. He died for us in the past 
in order to do that in the future. He's going to put us on display to the praise of his glory as the triumphs of his grace. He's going to present us. And the reason that touches a nerve is that this is so very different from our experience in this life as sinners. One of the effects of sin in our lives today is shame. Insofar as we're sinners in this life, we can say to some degree that we don't want to be known. There are things about us that we don't want to be seen. So that in a sense... We're not particularly eager to be presented. Instead, what we want is to run and hide. The thought of being publicly presented, insofar as we're still sinners, that is not a pleasant thought. The Christian's experience in this life, it's a mix. Because it is true that the Christian's been made new. But the Christian is still a sinner. So that the Christian is still wrestling with sin and what it means, including some sense of shame. The reality is every single one of us thinks and says and does things that we wouldn't want other people to know about. And that's because those things say something about what we're still like. So that the last thing we'd want when it comes to those sins is to be presented, to be put on display. Quite to the contrary, our instinct is to want to find the nearest rock and crawl under it and stay there until it feels like nobody's looking anymore. But what a difference the grace of God makes. How completely the grace of God takes away our shame. The effect of the grace of God in our lives even now is that we are even now longing for the day when we're going to be presented, that we're actually looking forward to the day when we're going to be put completely on display. How can this be? What can account for the fact that we're now looking forward to that? Well, the answer is, in the world to come, we're going to shine perfectly as those holy and blameless and above reproach. That's why on that day, we're going to be able to say, Jesus, present me. Put me on display. Present me to the Father. And show all of the saints and angels and demons and even enemies. Show them all by your grace what you've made me to be. In the world to come, there's not going to be anybody who wants to ride, run and hide anymore. Do you feel that way sometimes? Does your sin make you feel sometimes like you want to just run and hide? If you're in Christ, a day is coming when you're not going to have to feel that way anymore. On the last day, and then every day after it into eternity, you're going to be so glad to be presented by Christ for the glory of Christ because of what he will have made you to be, and you will love him for it. And you will be so glad to be put on display as a trophy of his grace. That's what Christ will do. And that brings us to the fourth and final, which is 
what we must do in the meantime. So we're looking forward to that. It's remarkable to think about that, that a day is going to come when we'll be presented like that. So what must we do in the meantime? And what it boils down to is this. We must press on. We must persevere so that the calling becomes, the encouragement becomes, brothers and sisters, yes, let's do just that. Let's press on. Let's persevere. Look at verse 23 because this is where this comes out. Look at verse 23. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Look at it again, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So no question, Paul is setting out here the requirement, the gospel imperative of perseverance. We must continue in the faith, ever believing. We have to be stable and steadfast. What we must do is press on. We can't quit. We can't stop now. I still remember what it was like when I was helping to coach one of the boys' baseball teams, a t-ball team, with some little, little kids on that team. And one of my roles was to position myself there at first base, and these kids would come trucking down toward first base from home plate. And then it was my role in part to say, keep going. Because sometimes they'd be so excited to get to first base, they'd just turn and smile for their adoring fans, or they would just keep running down that right field line toward the outfield, as if that would be a a different way of making a home run, just keep running toward the fence. And my role was to say, no, keep going, and oh, by the way, keep going that way. Just keep making left turns, although even that only got you so far because some of those kids didn't quite yet know right and left. So just, you know... Just keep going that way until you reach home. And how wonderful when you reach home. And it ought to be an incentive to us, it ought to be an encouragement to us when we think about persevering. To think that the gospel that we're called to persevere in is a worldwide gospel. And that's what Paul says here in verse 23. Paul himself says here that the gospel had been proclaimed in all creation. That's his way of saying this is a worldwide gospel preached to Jews and Gentiles alike. And so he's saying to the Colossians, this thing that you've embraced, this message, this, this cause that you've got to persevere in, this is no mere local phenomenon. This isn't something that's just happened in your city. No, this is... This is a worldwide gospel. And so be encouraged to think that you're being called to persevere in something that people like you all over the world are being called to persevere in. So there is the requirement of perseverance here. Paul is saying, you can't quit. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep going in order to reach that day when Christ will present you. And then I also want to say, take heart. Not only is there the requirement of perseverance here, but think about it implicitly. There's the reassurance that 
the genuine believer will persevere. The fact that the believer has to persevere in the faith, that doesn't mean that there's an actual possibility that the genuine believer won't. The genuine believer in Jesus, it's certainly the case that he's going to persevere as a believer in Jesus. And the things we've already seen in this passage tell us that. They send us that signal loud and clear. I mean, think about it. We've seen that Jesus has reconciled God's people to himself. Well, is it even conceivable that anybody for whom Christ did that is eventually going to bail out on Christ and have his reconciliation revoked? No, inconceivable. And not only that, but we've seen that Christ did that, redeemed and reconciled, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach one day. Is it even conceivable that that's not going to come true on the last day for anybody that Christ died for, that he lives for? No. It has to be that the genuine believer is going to persevere as a believer in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that the Christian isn't going to go through some seasons when his faith is weak, when he feels pushed and pulled and knocked down by temptation. Real believers go through real seasons like those. But the point is, even in the midst of those seasons, deep down there's still a continuing, there's still a persevering, there's still a faith Even if it ebbs low, even if it's weak, there's still a faith that won't let go of Jesus because Jesus won't let go of the believer. And the way Jesus does that, the way Jesus works so as to keep us going is a verse like verse 23. A verse in which he says, in effect, keep going. Jesus says in his word, he summons us in his word to press on, to persevere, and then happily by the ministry of his spirit, he works so that we do. Jesus has taken hold of the believer and he's never going to let go and the believer let go of him. And that's why it's with confidence and joy and hope that we can encourage one another the way Paul encouraged the Colossians by saying, brothers and sisters, let us press on. And in Jesus' name, that's what I say to you today. That's what I say to all of us. Christian, don't give up. Hold on. Hold on to Christ. Christian, don't settle for instability and flightiness in your faith. Shore it up. Put down roots. Christian, don't shift from the hope of the gospel by giving hopeless despair a foothold in your life. Don't give up because you are not what you were. That itself becomes an encouragement to keep going, just to remember what you were or what you might have been. You're not what you were, and you have been reconciled to God. And you have been reconciled to God along with a vast company around the world. And one day Christ is going to present you shining brilliantly with the very holiness of God. Therefore, Christian, Christian church, New Hope Presbyterian church, let us press on. By the grace of God we shall. Let's pray together. Father, we do bless you for your grace this day. We 
remember what we were, we are mindful of what we would be were it not for your grace. Alienated, hostile, working evil. And then we stand amazed at the thought that Christ, by his life and death and resurrection, has reconciled us to you. And then we turn and look forward to the day when Christ, who once reconciled us, will even present us. He will put us on display, holy, blameless, above reproach. And now we long for that day. And in the meantime, we are determined. We shall press on. And even as we say that, we cry out for your grace so that we do. And even as we say that, we rest in this, that you are gracious just like that. You will hold us fast. So we thank you for these gospel summons and encouragements today, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.